Madrid-born. Will he be Spain's thorn? Hakimi, their superstar fullback. What about that for a penalty? A monumental moment for Morocco. Penalty pain for Spain again. Hello, everybody. Spain are out of the World Cup. It's uh, a very somber podcast this time, but uh, that is the fact. Spain are out. Welcome to this La Liga Lowdown podcast. Recapping the round of 16 match between Morocco and Spain. I'm your host, Matt Clark, and I'm joined by a pretty disconsolate Paco Pollitt uh, here today. Uh, Paco, how are you? Um, I've had better days. And, and I think that most of our listeners, especially the Spanish ones, will share this, this feeling with me. But but yeah, I think it's going to be a tough blow to to overcome in the following in the following days because it's not just getting knocked out of the World Cup, but also the way you got knocked out. Because overall, we're going to delve deep into this game and we're going to talk about the different, you know, crucial aspects of what we saw. But overall, I think that a team as um, potentially strong, at least on paper, as Spain uh, can't really go down in the way they did against Morocco. You know, we can... Uh, talk about uh, you know hanging like the whole team from the from the post and, and having 10, 10 guys defending. Yeah, we can talk about that the kind of uh, handball, defensive football style, whatever. But at the end of the day, Spain should have at least scored once and should have at least created quite a few more chances that they actually did. So overall, the feeling of of disappointment is 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 very big at this point and. And I don't really know if if the the cycle of the manager in this case Luis Enrique has some sort of continuity life still breathing inside. I, I believe that this is the the end of a a cycle, and that uh, I believe later we're going to to touch upon this. But uh, the the way Spain got uh, knocked out is is something that we cannot as a fan base tolerate overall because Spain has shown many, many times that they can be much, much more than this. Yes, as you say, we'll talk about the ramifications and what could potentially happen in the future in part two. But for now, let's focus on the game itself and the way it unfolded. Nil-nil with Morocco after 90 minutes and then also after 120. Spain had 1,019 passes. They had 77% possession, just one shot on target. And as you say, Paco, that's just not good enough, is it? It's not. It's not good enough. It's not good enough. Not against Morocco, against any side. You know, ultimately, uh, what you saw the the opening game against uh, Costa Rica was that, uh, regardless of the style, regardless of the ball possession, Spain actually knew what to do with the ball. But we haven't seen that kind of flair or that kind of uh, proficiency in that sense in the following games. We didn't see it against Germany, but you could, you know. Uh, chalk it to some extent to the fact that Germany were a very powerful side. You didn't see it against Japan, and you definitely didn't see it against Morocco. Yes, we can speak about the the you know the kind of defense mounted by the 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 Moroccan manager and the way all of them. You know, <clears throat> I think at some point we'll have to uh, touch upon the the referee's performance because for me it was you know just not acceptable the way. Most of the game, especially the first 60 minutes, later it balanced out a bit, but 
the first 60 minutes, most of the divided balls were always, uh, you know, won by Morocco in some sense, or either committing a foul upon a Spanish player and it not being called, or later uh, with a Spanish player clearing the ball uh, legally and, and suffering a, a, a foul being called by, by the referee. The number of of yellows in, in such a game, which was very physical in the first half, very, you know, very contact-wise in that sense. Only one uh, booking for each side, I think, proves to some extent that the Argentinian uh, referee wasn't, you know, in his... He wasn't really committed to really put in the work in this game he just allowed things to happen and and that unfortunately uh you know was uh, negative for for spain but yeah the the stats of this game do not do not lie ball don't lie as as people often say and and spain are just unable to um, transform that kind of ball possession into actually taking the opposition into submission and, and be dominating in the way, for example, Portugal were able to do against uh, Switzerland, scoring quite a few goals uh, in that sense. They weren't not only dominating, but also trying to uh, hammer home the the chances and, and being successful at that, at that. Yeah, well, as you say, with those passing stats, the four highest passing figures in World Cup since records began in 1966, they all belong to Spain. The, the one against Russia in 2018 and three in this tournament, Costa Rica, Japan and Morocco. And from those games, listener, you will know that only one of those was a Spanish win. Of course, that's 7-0 against Costa Rica. So perhaps more the outlier than the trend. So then we go to uh, the extra time and penalties then. It's actually five knockout matches in a row in World Cups and Euros for Spain that have gone to extra time. Um, it seems to be a very common theme. And again, they weren't able to to find the back of the net. Sarabia came closest, hitting the post just before the end. Um, and yes, penalties. I mean, we can talk about those probably for the whole pod, but three penalties, none scored. They're only the second team ever in World Cup history to fail to score any of their penalties in a World Cup shootout. And Spain have now lost four penalty shootouts in World Cups, which is more than any other nation. I, it's it's almost grimacing, isn't it, Paco? I can see you sitting very uncomfortably there, but it is... Um, it hurts, actually. You know, just listening to your recap and, and remembering what happened just a few hours ago and the look on, on Pablo Sarabia's eyes as he was walking towards the, the penalty spot, the look on Busquets' face, who, who he really isn't a, a specialist in this in this kind of art. And uh, you, you just saw that uh, Bono was was uh, eating their, their, their mentality. He was able to to just become this this kind of uh, monster for for the Spanish uh, penalty takers and and yes uh, it's, it's an awful stat you know being just unable to score in that sense overall it was a as we say in Spanish a, a despropósito you know it is a whole despropósito it's something which shouldn't happen but it actually took place Spain being unable to score in 120 minutes and later being unable to score from the penalty spot is just something which was meant to happen this way mm. and uh, that's actually one thing I have been thinking for the last few minutes why Spain had to lose this way you know at the end of the day I don't know if it's more cruel to to lose um this way or maybe with a you know unfair penalty being delivered in the 90th minute and just losing one nail and going home this way the whole world has seen that you have been just unable to take a couple of chances and make something good out of them 
you know, we didn't try any long-range shots, mid-range shots, uh, set pieces, anything, anything, nothing worked. You know, uh, in some sense, I think that the first half was, in my view, at the end of the day, we we're talking about uh, personal opinions. In my view, the first half was just thrown to the rubbish bin because you just can't play, even though Luis Enrique's playbook uh, works that way. You actually, in 2022, you cannot be able to play and get something positive out of playing without a number nine. And I think Spain surely missed Alvaro Morata in the first half. It was what this one, one of those kind of games. But at the end of the day, I have many, many gripes with the uh, and grievances with the overall uh, squad list for the whole tournament. And I believe we touched upon this this topic in the last few recaps, especially before the after the game against the Japan, after the game against Germany. Obviously not after the first game because the you know the opener was was brilliant for Spain. But ultimately, I think that Spain would have benefited quite a lot from having a pure number nine alongside Alvaro Morata. I'm talking about Borja Iglesias. I'm talking about possibly, even though it wasn't meant to be, uh, Iago Aspas. You know, that kind of player who is able to know how to move, where to move, what to do inside the box, what to fight, how to fight again uh, when when the ball is, is you know, uh, marauding the, the area. In some sense, uh, that's what happened in 2010. Uh, alert readers and listeners and especially old people like me uh, might remember that in 2010 there was one specific game against Portugal which was an absolute deadlock you know the game was very balanced and along came uh, Fernando Llorente you know this guy almost two meters high uh, you know a typical number nine who was able to absolutely dismantle the uh, defensive net which uh, the Portuguese side had had woven in the in the first 60 70 minutes and and getting in Fernando Llorente was absolutely crucial towards the ultimate 1-0 win with David Villa's goal so that kind of uh resource was just absent from Luis Enrique's bench and in this sense I also had to add you might notice that I'm quite angry with quite a few of these topics um the health issues and the physical status of some of the players when we seen for example, Jose Luis Gallá being absent from the mm, the the ultimate uh, list of squad and, and, and list of players and the squad for the World Cup. I don't understand why Ansu Fati hasn't played more. Mm. I actually believe that the, there's a physical issue behind and that, uh, you know, the staff didn't really think that Ansu is ready to play like 30, 50, 60, 90 minutes in a single game. But... At the end of the day, Ansu Fati was one of our biggest hopes in order to unlock this kind of cagey games and cagey matches against uh, squads like the, the Moroccan one. And uh, the day came along and it was the, the, the D-Day for this kind of uh, addition to the, to the team. And Ansu Fati was nowhere to be seen because he's just unable to uh, do what he's uh, well known uh, in Barca. Uh, able to do so overall I think that uh, Luis Enrique dropped the ball in several crucial decisions before the World Cup they didn't really uh, come back to haunt him 
in the first couple of games, but when the coin was flipped in the in the last sixteen round, uh, ultimately it was it was tails for the for the Spanish side. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about Ansu there. I mean, of course, Spain probably don't have anyone of the like of Mbappe or a Harry Kane or a Neymar or a Leo Messi. Definitely. And Ansu is that kind of X factor. That's something different. A little bit of sparkle up front. And uh, in the end, probably today it was it was Nico Williams who looked the most threatening in terms of yeah. making something happen and having that great kind of... impact, great addition, but yeah. it wasn't enough. You know, unfortunately, I think it was a bit too late and possibly uh, Luis Enrique really wanted him to come in in the last in the last 30, 35 minutes um, and later into the, the extra time because of the, uh, you know, trying to wear down the, the defense, the Moroccan defense. But ultimately, I think that uh, the spark that keep brought in was too little too late for, for yeah. Spain. Yeah, that's the theme of today, sadly. And uh, the trend, it kind of goes back all the way to, well, after 2010, really, because in the last 11 matches since that famous night in Johannesburg, mm. Spain have only won three games in the World Cup, and that was Australia, yeah. Iran and Costa Rica. Um, and it's, it's mad. I mean, by 2026, the next World Cup... There are going to be Spanish kids of legal consenting age who will have never seen their side win a World Cup knockout match. It's just, it's mad, isn't it, really? I think it's more or less the expected downfall when you've been the best of the best for, you know, four full years. Ultimately, Spain dominated the the World Cup and also the European competitions for uh, three consecutive editions in the 2008, 2010, the World Cup in South Africa, and later the 2012 Euro. And that is something which hasn't been really seen um, ever in, in, in world football and, and especially in European football. But, uh, you know, the rise to the top can be tough, but the downfall can be quick and swift and very punishing uh, for any side. You might remember, for example, Back in the day, France were able to do something mm. similar in the 98 and the 2000 World Cup. And later, they, their, their demise in the 2002 against, you know, I believe it was, uh, I think, Brazil in the World Cup. Yeah, I think that it wasn't just, they weren't just uh, up to par in to their expected brilliance, you know. At, and that kind of performance, it also happened later with, with Germany. Might remember, you know, they, yep. they won the twenty fourteen and later the downfall was also very, very out in harsh. the groups twice so, since, yeah. Yeah. So in that sense, I think that rising to the top is very tough in, in, in worldwide football, but uh the downfall uh can be, you know, just around the corner. In that sense, Spain are still reeling from, you know, the good old days and when they dominated the 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 world of football because they were able to do so in a moment and in a time where the rest of the world were just playing catching up. Whereas now, I think overall football has changed in many, many ways. The physical quality of the players, the tactical quality of the squads, the way they train, the way they are managed, the way they are uh, overall prepared for these kind of tournaments has balanced things very, uh, quite a lot, you know, very, very much. And in that sense, the teams which are able to, uh, whenever there's a flip of a coin, always get heads, are those who have something different inside their squads. As you said earlier, mm -hmm. Brazil have all of their, you know, Samba talent, Vinicius, Neymar, Richarlison, all of them. France has definitely Mbappe and also Griezmann, who is completing up 
brilliant World Cup so far. Yeah. Uh, Portugal has Bruno Fernandes, for example, who is a player who I, you know, I admire quite a lot because I think he's brilliant. Uh, I don't know England, Harry Kane. Uh, we're seeing many players for England having that kind of uh, change in mentality, and even though they are not playing Phil Foden quite a lot, they are not really noticing it because they are playing excellent football and obviously Argentina and Leo Messi. So overall, you can see that every single favorite has some sort of different flavor to more or less the baseline for both their tactical and their physical development. Whereas for Spain, we are missing and lacking that kind of player. In 2008, Spain had that because they had, especially in front, Plenty of firepower. David Villa, Fernando Torres, David Silva, Santi Cazorla. Later in 2010, David Villa was in his prime. And you can see that in that World Cup, Spain always won 1-0. And the goal was most of the time by David Villa. And in 2010, it was some sort of sublimation of the style. And they were able to beat the opposition so easily and so effortlessly because they were at the peak of their powers. But later, the downfall has been uh, dramatic. And I think Spanish football is going to take quite a bit to find a new style, to find something different to bring to the table. Because we are seeing at this point that as we lack this kind of star players, uh, it just isn't going to cut it. Doing the same as the rest of the squads is not going to be enough. Because we saw in this kind of uh, game against a supposedly inferior side as the Moroccan one, that whenever you go toe-to-toe with one of these teams who, you know, lock themselves behind, uh, protect their goal with 10 men, uh, are very pressing, are very aggressive, are very, uh, you know, rowdy in some in some place, uh, the Spanish kids don't have that kind of veteran uh, quality to them. They don't have that kind of experience and ultimately their demise is inevitable. Mm. Yes, we'll be back for the second half and we'll talk plenty more about this and, and what it will mean for the future. And uh, also talk a bit about mm. Morocco because uh, credit to them for passing through to the quarterfinal. So join us again in a few moments. We'll be back very shortly. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back to La Liga Lowdown. I'm here with Paco Pollitt, um, ruminating in the ashes of Spain's World Cup campaign. Uh, it's worth giving Morocco some credit, though, because they were magnificently well organised and they had a game plan and it worked. Um, 
some can criticise the style, but in knockout tournament football, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. And credit to the coach, uh, Walid Regragi. He, um, he's been a revelation since coming in, only just before the tournament. They've only conceded one goal under his tutelage, and that was an own goal against Canada. Uh, a remarkable record. And Morocco overall have only lost two of the last 45 games, I believe now. So they are a very tough nut to crack anyway. So they're by no means minnows, even though they were lowest ranked side left in the tournament and there's quite a few illegal links of course we've got Bono in goal of course most famously uh, Yusuf and Naziri up front El Yamik plays for El Valladolid and of course uh, the coldest moment you've ever seen Ashraf Hakimi born in Spain yeah. grew up in Madrid at the Real Madrid Academy declined Spain's offers to, to play for them because he wants to play for the country of his, his parents birth and then he goes on to score the winning penalty none other than Penenka style, to put Spain out of the World Cup. I mean, what more can you say? It's just, um, he had the huevos there, didn't he? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that it's easier to do that whenever you have that kind of advantage and Spain yeah. are just unable to put the ball <laughs> into the back of the net uh, because Bono was massive, you know, before that moment with Asraf and the way he scored the, the Panenka-style penalty. Overall, I think that uh, Morocco's performance has to be taken seriously and has to be praised because of uh, the individual performances, but also collectively the, the team just were uh, like a pack of hungry, of hungry wolves defending their own goal uh, for several key moments of the, of the game. Uh, Amrabat, for example, was massive in, in the everywhere. midfield. I think that everywhere. he was absolutely everywhere. You could see his, his shiny head uh, wherever <laughs> and whenever in the in any kind of brawl in the midfield, in any kind of rejection inside the box, in any deflection from the defenders. He was always there. And he was always there, often uh, adding to his uh, repertoire uh, tackle or uh, kicking the wherever or... He was always trying to get something positive out of any single situation. And I think he was he was great for, for his team. Not so great for Spain's interests, obviously. But if you uh, start handing up uh, Anrabat's performance, Asraf's, uh, Asraf's uh, performance in the wing, Thijic, uh, always, I think he, he, was, he has been more interested in defending and helping his teammates rather than attacking overall. Um, and in the in the first half, I noticed this guy. Uh, remember, Llorente was playing as the the right uh, back um, in the first half. Bufal was Bufal, yeah, former unstop unstoppable. You know, just yeah. unstoppable. And uh, Llorente had a very tough time with him. He tried to uh, get him into you know, to try to get him into some sort of uh, better place for Spanish interest in the second half. He was able to do that. And also the manager, uh, Regragui, was able to, you know, see that Buffal was a bit more tired and he inserted another player, something, uh, another uh, replacement, and Buffal was, went to the bench. But even Abde, when he came in, mm -hmm. tried to do something positive for his side. Uh, remember this player who is currently... Uh, in Osasuna's uh, roster, so yeah, overall I think it's. Um, I wouldn't believe that they are going to be able to beat Portugal in, in in the quarterfinals. Even though we have seen many surprises already, and we are going to see quite a few more in what remains of the of the World Cup. But 
overall, I think that their performance has, can only be qualified as outstanding. You yeah. know, it's it's been uh, the perfect example of what I often call champagne football over here, uh, which uh, per another perfect example was Bordalases Valencia or Bordalases Getafe back in the day. Uh, this kind of, you know, no-nonsense attitude whenever defending, trying to always get a clean sheet, always hit getting your goalkeeper to be one of the stars, your defenders, your midfielders, your defensive midfielders, the stoppers, all of them, they did great. And even though Nasiri and his teammates uh, in front were more or less disappeared overall, I think they are going to be extremely happy of the ultimate outcome, even though they were just unable to uh, generate chances against Unai Simon. Uh, because most of the time, you know, ball was in, in Spain's feet, but it was without any kind of danger or any sense of urgency for, for Morocco to, to defend even further. Yes, yeah, really credit to them, uh, valiant performance from the Atlas Lions, the first African side to reach the World Cup quarterfinals since Ghana in 2010. So good luck to them as they go through the tournament. But let's head back to Spain now and the fallout. We had a lot of comments after the game. Uh, Ferran Torres, Rodri. Uh, the, the theme was, you know, it was unfair, unjust, we deserve to pass. Kind of the same old story when you've dominated possession but couldn't score. Uh, Luis Enrique, he, he didn't want to blame the ref, to be fair, but he did say that it's uh, almost a shame that a team can win without attacking. Now, he was referring to Morocco, of course, but in many ways, you could argue Spain were guilty of the same, couldn't you? Um, he did take responsibility for the penalty takers. He said he would, take, he would choose the same ones again. And, yeah, again, I mean, Carlos Soler, he, he was putting them past Madrid for fun a couple of years ago, wasn't he? And, and he, yeah. he never looked so scared taking a penalty in his life, I dare say. So whether that's the pressure or the significance of a World Cup knockout match, it's, it's impossible to say. But yeah. yeah, I think the lack of, the lack of experience overall can be, can be blamed, but uh, not by the manager, because the manager is the one uh, in charge of picking the, the players who are going to represent the team in a World Cup. But... Yeah, whenever you get to this point, uh, I think it's always some sort of mental battle between the squads. And when you get to the 120th minute with a you know no goal scoreline, the lesser, inferior, weaker side is the one who most of the time gets the upper hand in the penalty shootout because they have the motivation of having stuck to the game plan and actually working. Whereas for Spain, you know, their game plan was never uh, drawing nil-nil against Morocco. You know, they expected to generate chances. They expected to have a, a couple of goals here and there. You know, they expected to be superior and to show that into the, you know, to transfer that superiority into the into the scoreboard. But they were just unable to do so. I mean, that failure, that kind of mental... Uh, grievance that you carry on forward to the penalty shootout, you could see that Pablo Sarabia, Carlos yeah. Soler, Busquets, all of them looked terrified at the prospects of both taking the pen and ultimately f failing to score. And uh, if you add into the mix that Bono just seemed uh, a giant under the sticks and that he seemed to be super focused and, and super aware of where all of the advantage Gist and disadvantages of the of the different takers were, uh, it wasn't it was just not meant to be, and, and Spain was was damned in that sense when the when the final whistle came around and and we went into the into the penalty shootout. Yeah, Lucho said they practiced uh, up to a thousand, but uh, it wasn't to be. Not enough. 
Clearly yeah. not enough. <laughs> Clearly taking not a enough. pen in a training session is not the same yeah. as taking a pen in a in a penalty shootout in a World Cup. You just yeah, you can't prepare for that situation. Nothing can prepare you for the the mental torture that a, that is a World Cup knockout shootout. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say it, but ultimately, I think that the guys, the lads, most of the young ones, and, and I, I'm going to use that like the, the the plural over here and the and the second person, we choked. I think that Spain choked overall, uh, because they were better, the better team, but they didn't prove it. And mm. and in my book, that is choking. We've seen it in the NBA, in basketball, in football. We've seen it many times. And it really hurts when it's your team or your national team, the one uh, choking, as Spain did. Yes. Well, let's look towards the future and what it might mean then. I mean, we had Gavi, who started the game. He was the youngest player to start a World Cup knockout match since Pelé in 1958. His sub, his sub was uh, a turning point of the game. Mm. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave, once again, you to repeat that stat because I think Gavi is brilliant, but... When Gavi left the the pitch, Spain's chances of winning the game seriously decreased. In in my view, um, maybe he was you know having some sort of physical issues or you know was picking uh, the risk of picking an injury or he was tired. I don't know. But when Gavi left the pitch, I think that was giving Morocco um, quite a big advantage in the game. Yeah, certainly less tenacity on the pitch when he left. So you have him in midfield, and next to him you have, at the very opposite end of the spectrum, Sergio Busquets, who played his 17th World Cup match, equaling Iker Casillas and Sergio Ramos as the record holder for Spain. But was that his last game for the national team, Paco? Should it be? It's, it's a good question, and I think that it's going to really depend on who the next uh, guy in charge of the team is. You know, if Luis Enrique continues uh, two more years or six more months because there are a number of theories around regarding the the future of Luis Enrique. One of them says that he might be uh, adamant to complete a full four-year run and in that kind of hypothetical uh, theory uh, that for those four years we would finish in 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 June 2023 with that uh, League of Nations final. Um, if Luis Enrique continues, I think that Busquets is going to see uh, a tiny window uh, regarding his his continuity with the, you know, with the, and remaining in the national squad. If there's a new manager, I think it's going to be very tough. I think that if a new manager comes in, for Spain, uh, they are going to try to change as many things as possible, especially I think in the in the midfield because I, I think that Spain lacked replacements for Busquets in this in this tournament, and one of the reasons for that was actually one of the um, answers or solutions that Luis Enrique came up to the problem at the back. You know, placing Rodri as a centre back. Uh, was great for many things, but also made the uh, subbing or uh, you know the the relays in the midfield between Busquets and him be just impossible to to do, and uh, that kind of problem uh, was you know uh, carried on in the first couple of games, and we 
unfortunately saw it in you know peak form and and peak uh, level of, of problems uh, in this last 16 game because Busquets was extremely tired in the second half against Morocco and I think that playing 120 minutes for a player as him with the age he has uh, with the age he is at this point I think it's uh, one of the ingredients in the recipe for for failure. Mm. Well, you touched on Luis Enrique there. He said after the game that there will be time to speak about his future, potentially next week. He also said that if it was up to him, he would stay forever. But he also has to think about what's best for him and his family and what's best for Spain. So a little mm. bit cryptic there, but a lot of the... Well, certainly the, the haters have had a field day because a lot of their kind of forecasts yeah. have come true that Spain wouldn't get very far and his players wouldn't be the right ones. And interesting, we have a, a fresh piece on our Substack from Roman Darquer on the fallout with regards to Lucho. That is on our Substack, llonline.substack.com. Go and check that out. Uh, so yeah, Paco, his continuity, you've, you've obviously said there's a few, you've already touched on it there. He might stay another six mm. months. Uh, if he does go now, as many has also said is quite likely, who do you see as the, the best place to come in and and when could that kind of be taking place? You know, there's not, uh, actually, there's not a perfect candidate at this point who is able to actually grab what Luis Enrique has done right and try to, uh, you know, enhance it and increase... Uh, its performance and 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 get the team to soar onto new heights. I think that the that the following manager, if Luis Enrique ultimately leaves, uh, is going to try to bring a very different approach to the to the table. Actually, there's been quite a few names being thrown around in the last few months. Um, many have spoken about uh, Rafael Benitez. Others have spoken about Ernesto Valverde too. Uh, but actually, I think that the that the candidate who is both m more keen to uh, you know try to live up to the challenge and also could potentially um, you know rev up and, and revolutionize the the national team is is actually Marcelino García Toral you know he he did something very similar to that back in the day in in Valencia in 2017 Valencia were in shambles and he just grab grabbed a, a team of of losers and of players who were in possibly in the lowest point and, and and in a couple of of seasons he was able to turn them into champions so and and one of the forces to be reckoned with in, in la liga so obviously training a national squad is very very different to do it in a in a la liga side uh, we've seen many managers who failed to do things well with spain and later did pretty great in uh, la liga and the other way around, okay? So uh, possibly Marcelino would have to adjust a number of things in order to uh, be successful with, with Spain. But I think that if the Spanish uh, Federation ultimately decide on on bringing in Marcelino, I think it would be a, a smart choice. I don't think it would, if it would be successful or not, because it's, it's obviously too early to do that. But at least we have a manager, we will have a manager with a, very serious, uh, successful track record, especially in the last few years, uh, and and that is very important. Who understands the modern style of of football and and all of the different uh, you know bits and pieces and changes here and there and the uh, different play styles and and also who is able to uh, 
in his uh, very uh, squared-like playstyle because he always favored playing 4-4-2 uh, back in the day uh, with with Valencia and also in Athletic Club. Uh, I think he is able to shift gears and styles and getting an, another forward and and changing things up a, a little in the in the midfield and and playing with three at the back. He has that kind of versatility which we haven't actually seen with Luis Enrique, you know. Even in the direst moments, he tried to stick to his playbook as much as possible. And even today, mm. in the last few minutes, we, you're just desiring that uh, another striker would come in and that you would, you know, try to risk it a bit more. Uh, subbing out a, a defender, getting another midfielder, another offensive midfielder, another attacker... I don't know. We expected a bit more from from Luis Enrique in the in the game against the Morocco, but ultimately his playbook in this sense uh, hasn't really been very very different. He always has this A plan. He sticks to it. If it works, that's great. But when it doesn't really work, that's when problems come around. Mm, so potentially from Padrique to Javelino, potentially on the. <laughs> The bench of Spain. I, I, I'd say Marcelino, that's it, because I spoke to him actually a few weeks ago and yes. he, he still has that kind of uh, remembrance of what happened. Uh, he got an accident and he, uh, you know, in the, uh, he had a road kill with, um, with a boar, which was very, very dangerous. You know, the, 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 the car actually toppled and ended with its roof on the ground. It was very, very scary. Mm. Uh, nothing happened to Marcelino or his family, but it was a very scary moment. But but yeah, Marcelino, you know, uh, Valencia fans obviously have plenty of love for him. Uh, but it's a big question mark. You know, any manager who comes now after Luis Enrique is going to bring a very, very, like, Super Mario Bros-like big uh, question mark mm. block uh, on top of its head. Indeed. I mean, this is a guy who's won the treble with Barca and has been around the block in, in club football. So, yeah, it's, it's a gamble to, to change that. But, uh, yes, that, that, the interview with Marcelino is, is fantastic. It's, uh, it's available still, isn't it, on uh, Plaza Deportivo, your interview with him? Uh, yeah, I think so. In, in Plaza Podcast, you can find it. Obviously, it's in Spanish, but it's yeah. like three hours of mm. chat with him. So anyone who doesn't really know him will have the chance of knowing like every bit, bit and piece of his his life, his, he, when he was a player, when he became a coach, you know, many things about his own personal story and what he did back in the day, both in, in Valencia and also in Athletic Club. Mm. Highly recommended listener if you are able to listen in Spanish, so check that out. Uh, Paco, the half an hour has absolutely flown by as we've uh, attempted to dissect Spain's crashing exit from the World Cup. Any mm. final closing thoughts before we bid goodbye? Uh, I'm really angry but the disappointment is larger than the anger, mm. you know. Um, I was angry during the game about the refereeing and this Argentinian ref who was very, uh, you know, there isn't an actual English word for that. In Spanish, we say casero, you know, arbitro casero, who is very, all of the calls favor the same side, obviously the home side, because actually the game took place in a ground where it seemed that Morocco was yeah. playing home. Yeah. Like, like 30,000 Moroccan fans in the stands, they were representing the Arab world and, it, and, and you could really feel it. Uh, I wasn't really impressed with the refereeing. I wasn't really impressed with Luis Enrique and I definitely wasn't impressed with the way Spain played. So even I was one of the biggest champions of, of the Spanish national team and I really th thought that uh, we were bound to 
greatness and we were bound to at least get into the semifinals and duke it out against one of the maybe maybe even the potential champion i don't know i, th I thought that spain were really prepared to um, go far in this tournament but once again uh we've really regressed into those uh 80s or 90s where spain were always doomed to failure and always something happened uh for spain to come crashing down uh, in France, 98, with that Thuizarreta blooper against Nigeria, or in um, the United States, 94 World Cup, with that uh, Tassotti elbow to the nose, to Luis Enrique, by the way. <laughs> okay, yeah. Jul Julio Salinas missing a one-on-one -on -one against pa Pabliuca, and later in the following play, um, it was uh, Roberto Baggio scoring against Spain. I don't know, it was, uh, it was some sort of uh, doom, on or curse against Spain, la maldición de cuartos, la maldición de octavos. It was some sort of curse for the Spanish squads, which went in in rapid succession into the different uh, World World Cups, and and they were never able to succeed. And I think Spain had slowly regressed to that point. We we enjoyed the 2008 uh, triumph and the 2010 World Cup and the following 2012. Euro once again. It was a a, a great treble of, of uh, tournaments for the Spanish side. But in the last 10 years, we've really known once again the bitterness of being a Spanish fan. And unfortunately, we're going to have to suffer that at least till the next uh, June when Spain will try to at least uh, conquer that uh, League of Nations Final Four. It will be like the perfect chance for Luis Enrique or to Luis Enrique to cap off his his uh, four-year run or to any manager to start uh, with a proper win and start with, with good sensations in his new run. Mm. Yes, we always like to leave you the positive note here on the Liga Lowdown. We, uh, it, it's hard to be positive today, but we've uh, hopefully brought a fair reflection of today's events and the World Cup mm. as a whole. Well, Paco, thank you very much for joining me today. Your insight was uh, phenomenal as ever. Um, uh, console yourself tonight with a with a nice beverage and uh, Valencia play again soon. So, I, I don't think it, that is that is good news. <laughs> <laughs> you are talking about that as something positive, and unfortunately, more pain awaits for us. So, so yeah, the pain never goes away. It's more or less the the story of our lives. Ah, oh, well, on that note, thank you very much again. Um, keep across our La Liga me. Lowdown Twitter feed for reaction to the rest of the World Cup, uh, especially with the La Liga focus. Um, still a few La Liga players can be world champions if Spain cannot and uh, yeah check out our Substack for ongoing reaction and analysis of the tournament thank you once again for you all for listening and thanks Paco and uh, we'll speak to you again soon adios por la masía, ahí va Busquet, golpea Busquet. Parabola. Ha sido muy difícil. Busquets falló en la Eurocopa, ¿no? Pierna derecha, Rachuta, Raf. Estamos eliminados. Vaya tela. Estamos fuera del mundial. Lloro por mi España. Lloro por mi España. No hay derecho. Estamos eliminados. 
lloro por mi España. No puede ser. No puede ser.